0: Good evening, uh, everyone. Uh, I'm Nathaniel Peters, the director of the Morningside Institute. And on behalf of Morningside and our co-sponsors tonight, uh, our friends at the Abigail Adams Institute and the Elm Institute, I want to welcome you all to tonight's webinar, um, Using History Well, How Past Discord Can Help Us Understand a Divided Present. Um, Now, it's no secret that we live in one of the most divisive moments in American history, a time when many have begun publicly and privately asking whether our country is headed for dissolution or another civil war. And in fact, if you put the phrase, is America, into Google right now, the top entries are all, is America going to collapse, going to collapse like the Roman Empire, going to have another civil war? Um, Now, thinking about that question should involve a consideration of prominent periods of discord in history other prominent periods, such as America's own civil war or the wars between the Italian states during the Renaissance. But thinking about that question should also prompt us to ask about the uses and abuses of history more generally. How can we use the past to understand the present in a productive and responsible way? So to help us with this task, we have tonight uh, with us two of America's most eminent historians, Alan Guelzo and James Hankins. Alan Guelzo is the senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and director of the James Madison Programs Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship, the author of highly acclaimed biographies of The Reconstruction, The Battle of Gettysburg, and Abraham Lincoln. He is currently working on a biography of General Robert E. Lee, which um, is going to be out at the end of September. Professor James Hankins is a professor of history at Harvard University, the founder and editor of uh, Harvard's Itati Renaissance Library, and the author most recently of The Magnificent Virtue Politics, Soulcraft, and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. Again, Alan and Jim, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, We're delighted to welcome you to Morningside, if only virtually. Professor James Hankins.
1: Uh, So, we're here to talk about hyperpartisanship, the current uh, plague in American political life, and how history can help us to understand it, and whether history can enrich our prudence or our practical wisdom in trying to deal with the situation uh, of dysfunctional political systems. So, partisanship, I just want to start by saying partisanship uh, has been accepted as normal uh, in Western society since the 18th century. Before the 18th century, partisanship was not acceptable. You had to do it secretly. The word partes means part as opposed to whole, right? So if you're in favor of the part rather than the whole, you are violating the common good by, by definition. But since the 18th century, the idea that partisanship has a positive role to play in political societies has been accepted. And I think that that's right, up to a point, Um, If you're going to share power in a society, if you want to have a pluralistic society, there has to be some way of negotiating among different interests in society. Uh, So partisanship as horse trading is perfectly good, acceptable, and certainly far preferable to uh, one element in society simply dominating and exploiting the other. Um, So but what we have now is something different. Uh, We have... What has been called uh, hyperpartisanship, a word that really is quite recent, uh, as far as I can tell, in the dictionaries. And hyperpartisanship, I think, is properly classified as a political disease. What makes it so different is, um, first of all, uh, that it's powered by ideology. We're not talking here about horse trading or uh, one group. Uh, defending its interests against another and coming up with compromises. We're talking about different elements of society that want to wipe out the other ones. And we, we all know, uh, we, we can all think of examples of this in recent, in recent political uh, discourse. I don't have to go into this. But, uh, and what drives this is ideology, the idea that we're right, they're wrong. Uh, they are not only wrong, but they are, uh, they are evil, and we should wipe them out. We shouldn't allow them to even to speak in the public square, whereas we we are the, the avatars of virtue and we should be uh, able to dominate all the institutions in society. So this is quite different from, from regular partisanship, which we all have as part of a normal, healthy democratic society. So ideology is one driver of this. And I think the other driver of hyper-partisanship uh, is systematic injustice everyone talks about social justice these days, but my my problem is with injustice, which is uh which especially is favoring one group over another that one side in politics gets away scot free for all its crimes and the other other uh, other side is punished uh the poor are imprisoned, and the rich get off and there's no equal justice under the law this is a, a major driver of hyperpartisanship When people f- feel that they cannot get justice, that the system is rigged against them, as we so often hear, um, then that is a driver of hyperpartisanship. partisanship So history. One, one of the comforting things about history is that uh, no matter how bad it is, it's always been worse at some other point in history, right? We can always find uh, a time when things were even worse in the present, and that's a kind of comfort, I, I think. Um, in fact, if you look at Western history, you see that much of it has been uh, tortured by hyper-partisan situations. Uh, thinking over my period of, I won't say expertise, but uh, familiarity, uh, in the Middle Ages, early modern period, uh, you can point to the Guelph-Ghibelline structure uh, struggle in the 13th century, the High Middle Ages, uh, the Guelph party being the party of the Pope and the Ghibelline party being the party of the emperor. Uh, this is an ideological struggle, an intense ideological struggle, struggle, generating generation after generation of hatred and warfare and reprisals and all those nasty things, which are, I have to say, much worse than anything we see uh, today. So that's the obvious high medieval example of hyper-partisanship. Uh, And then in the early modern period, we have the era of the wars of religion, which also lasts for over a century. Uh, And again, it's ideologically driven if we understand religion as an ideology or ideology as religion, as you might prefer. Uh, So the wars of religion, of course, are also driven, are extremely hyper-partisan, nasty, violent, intolerant period uh, in which um, one side is simply unwilling to tolerate the other. Uh, and wants to destroy the other, defeat the other in battle, and make them submit to to the uh, to the true religion. So there's other periods of extreme partisanship that one one normally thinks of in this connection. I think most people who have a Western civ education might think of the late Roman Empire, which is certainly a period of violent civil war between different factions. Uh, Modern historians sometimes see this as an ideological struggle between Republicans and monarchists. I I think that that's that's a delusion of modern uh, historiography, that the Romans themselves thought of this period of civil war uh, as essentially a a moral problem, a problem of moral corruption. That was Cicero's view, that the reason why we had these horrible civil wars is because that people were not devoted to the republic, by which he meant, you know, to the public wheel and were out for themselves. Uh, Sallust saw the decline of the Roman Republic as a matter of uh, moral corruption driven by the fact that Rome had become wealthy uh, and powerful and therefore had lost its virtue. So when you don't have virtue, you can't have a republic. That's the typical ancient and actually Renaissance view as well. Uh, so you have to settle for monarchy. Monarchy, in this view, is a kind of safe safe house that you would decline into when, you're, when your virtue is inadequate to maintain a republic. So um, the, the Founding Fathers knew all about the, this history. As you know, they're very intelligent, and well-educated people, unlike our politicians today. Um, and they uh, they tried to deal with this uh, these issues of extreme ideological polarization and extreme moral corruption, which, by the way, I think is one reason why our situation is particularly grave now, because we have both. We have ideological polarization, and we have, in my view, extreme moral corruption uh, in in the uh, polity. So the founding fathers are aware of this. I I don't want to tread on Alan's territory here, uh, and he's the American history expert, but uh, it's pretty clear that the Founding Fathers wanted to defuse potential hyperpartisanship situations. Uh, so that's why they prohibit the federal government from interfering with the free exercise of religion in the states, no established religion. Um, that's why they were interested in guaranteeing free speech. That's so they could blow off, people could blow off steam if they had different opinions, exchange views. Uh, that's why they uh, wanted an independent judiciary. And that's, I think, why they wanted a, a, a government that was effective in foreign policy and war, but but uh, was tended to benign paralysis in domestic affairs uh, in a way that would force people basically to, to treat politics as a conflict of interest and not as an ideological struggle. All right. so. Uh, Alan will correct me if I'm wrong about this, but this is the way I read the documents, the Federalist Papers and the, and the Constitutions. So we can ask some questions of the history of hyperpartisanship in Western thought. Uh, I think one question we should ask is whether extreme partisanship is always bad, right? Uh, does one side ever simply deserve to win and the other side to lose? And this, this is certainly the way people thought in the year of the wars of religion. Uh, they thought that the other side was bad. The Pope is the Antichrist, and, 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 the, uh, and the Protestants had the evangelical religion, and the Catholics thought that the Protestants were tools of the devil, et cetera, et cetera. They were extremely intolerant, they wanted to destroy each other. Um, so it's possible that uh, you could take the view that one side is simply bad and we're good, and they should, they should lose. Uh, I think in a, in a free society, this is not uh, should not be the default setting. It should not be uh, a, a view that is taken lightly. Um, my general view is that only when partisan positions are extreme and intolerant and do not want to tolerate the other side, that's when they they have to be defeated. Uh, but if you have ideological positions that that merely reflect um, permanent tendencies of human nature, like the desire for change versus desire to conserve things, um, such as you found up until recently in American politics between progressives and and conservatives, That that is something that is better preserved uh, than, uh, it, if you try to beat the other side with the other sides being moderate, they, they quickly will become extreme. Uh, and the high middle ages we have, the party of the Pope and the party of the empire were fighting over the temporal welfare versus the spiritual welfare of society, and those are both permanent tendencies. Uh, there has to be some way of of adjusting the interest of of, of, uh, of the supernatural end of man and the natural end of man. We can't we can't abolish parties that defend one or the other. Okay, so that's one question you could ask. Um, but I think in general, one should assume that partisanship is good and, and uh, if it's uh, if it, it is not um, intolerant and destructive to the other side, at least in, in, a, in a liberal democracy such as ours. Um, another question you can ask, I think is quite interesting, uh, is w- what brings an end to periods of hyper-partisanship? How do these, how do these episodes of hyper-partisanship end? Uh, is there a good outcome? um do we just have to wait for the fever to dry, die out, or are there statesmanlike uh, measures we can take to help uh, uh, soften hyperpartisanship? So I would say that the most common outcome of periods of hyperpartisanship is monarchy. <laughs> uh, that's unfortunately pretty much what happened to all of the popular republics of the high middle ages in Italy and Germany, or mostly in Italy. There were, there were hundreds of them in the 13th century. By the 14th century, there were four left, Lawrence, Siena, Lucca, and Venice. Uh, so most of those Republican experiments ended in monarchy. Certainly the Roman Empire's experiment in republicanism entered, ended in monarchy. Um, so that is a danger. And if you follow uh, one thing I did one time with the, with the class is we I assigned them to find uh, examples of presidents who had been accused of being Julius Caesar, right? And my class discovered that pretty much every president, uh, except for George Washington, uh, maybe Alan knows a counterexample, has been accused of being Julius Caesar, threatening the republic and bringing it, bringing it to an end. Um, so. You know that that kind of model is in the background of the American political imagination, certainly, uh, as a threat. Uh, but there are other cases I think where you can point to periods of hyperpartisanship that were ended in uh, in a, 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 a satisfactory Republican solution. Um, in the Middle Ages, I think of the uh, the Bon Governo of Siena, uh, which after a, a, a hundred years of unimaginable Bitter partisanship. They 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 set up a good government uh, for about 70 years. At the end of the 13th, or first half of the 14th century. Uh, if you go to Siena uh, nowadays in Italy, you'll see the marvelous monuments that they this government built. Uh, and this government basically succeeded by creating a balance of social classes and a leadership that was meritocratic. Okay, a leadership that tried that tried to base itself on successful performance in office. Uh, Another example of Republican statesmanship, which brought about a, I think, a satisfactory conclusion to long periods of partisanship, was the British Constitution after the Glorious Revolution, um, that the British essentially discovered uh, benign partisanship, that it was possible to have a loyal opposition who would not be in office, but would criticize those in office, and who uh, would um, prepare an alternative program of government, uh, which could be plugged in when the current government lost support? Uh, so they 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 found a way into uh, into a partisan but benign partisan future, and I think the British Constitution is surely the most successful of all all. Republican constitutions or, well, it's a constitutional monarchy, but uh, let's say constitutional governments, certainly the British Parliament. uh, You might argue maybe that some people think the French Third Republic was particularly successful. It too tried to balance parties and to have a kind of relative freedom and toleration and so forth. Uh, But that is something that is harder to achieve, I think, a Republican, a benign Republican outcome of a hyper-partisan situation. That requires quite a lot of of, uh, of statesmanship and wisdom and practical knowledge, and also the willingness to cooperate with the other side, put your hand across the aisle, or to, uh, as the British say, dine with the opposition. Um, you need that kind of so- social um. Closeness among the leaders of opposite parties, in order to uh, for that kind of cooperation to take place. So, another uh, last question I'm going to ask, because I don't want to get on to Ellen's time, um, is whether uh, if we have an oligarchy, which is what we have now, it's pr- pretty clear we have a we have an oligarchical situation, where which is suppressing a. Um, uh, 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 uh expressing essentially the the older uh, traditional American um, system of values uh, if there's anything you can do to 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 improve the oligarchy because this is another avenue to reform uh there are theorists like Pareto who say that all government is oligarchical in the sense that it's always going to be the rule of a few over the many uh, so the real problem of government in his view is is how do you get good oligarchs. If you have some people who are immensely powerful, wealthy, they have financial power, they have, in our case, technological power, uh, can you do anything to um, make sure that they use their power well? And that's when you get into the subject of of virtue politics, which I wrote about in my last book. Uh, What's the role of education, good character, practical wisdom, informing governing elites? Can you get... uh, an oligarchy that's corrupt to be uncorrupt or to improve its behavior. Uh, That was the project of the Italian Renaissance humanists, for example, they were trying to deal with corrupt oligarchs of their time, corrupt uh, tyrants of their time and try to make them behave better by reaching down into ancient traditions and finding uh, finding, uh, inspiring traditions in the past to improve the behavior of rulers in the present. Uh, So um, that is a rather exclusive or high-level way of reforming a polity, reforming its its members, uh, its ruling members. Uh, I also think another thing that that one could hope for and pray for would be um, a religious revival, uh, I think Yuval Levin has talked about this a lot, that really the only hope we have of getting back our polity at this point is to have a major religious revival, something like the great, the Second Great Awakening, uh, which would uh, lead to a, a renewal of, of common values in our society, uh, since one of the major problems of hyper-partisanship is you have uh, different Moral systems that don't recognize the validity of the other. So, if there were a religious revival or something like it, you might hope for that for a reinstatement of some kind of common common values. Uh, all right, I'm going to stop talking here and let my much more eloquent friend Alan, uh, who, who unlike me speaks in complete sentences and paragraphs, take take over uh, take over the, the discussion.
2: Well, all right. Well. Uh... Jim, as always, you're entirely and almost irrationally generous uh, in, uh, in complimenting me. I will try to live up to that, conscious of the fact that I probably will not. But here goes anyway. Um, Americans have endured only one civil war. That is, unless you count the internal conflicts of Tory and Patriot in the revolution as a civil war which you really shouldn't because we're not talking about something that conforms to classical definitions of civil conflict. The Tories never really erected their own separate government as a civil entity to struggle against the civil entity that the Continental Congress brought into being. And though by the standards of civil conflicts in world, world history, our civil war was comparatively brief. It only lasted four years. Uh, compare that to the 20 years of the Taiping Rebellion in China in the 1850s and the 1860s. It was going on at almost the same time as our civil war, but it lasted much longer, and the costs were infinitely greater in terms of the loss of life. Even if you compare it to the English Civil Wars of the 17th century, which lasted from 1642 to 1651, uh, by comparison, even there, the American Civil War was relatively brief. And yet, its costs were simply heart-stopping. By the latest reckoning, we're talking about some 750,000 dead or maimed, or unaccounted for, Uh, we have to take into that reckoning a federal veterans pension list so big that for half a century afterwards, it was the single largest item in the federal budget. Union veterans pension, by the way, there were no Confederate veterans pensions, but union veterans pensions were the pig in the budgetary python uh, all the way for the next five decades after the conclusion of the Civil War. And we hardly have a mechanism for measuring the impact of what today we call PTSD on the survivors of civil war conflict. Uh, Americans had a real sense that the world that they inhabited on the other side of 1865 was a very different affair from the one they had lived in before 1861. Uh, In William Dean Howells's post-Civil War novel, The Rise of Silas Lapham, uh, the principal character in Howell's novel, a veteran of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, laments the fact that uh, the world he's living in is an extremely different world than the one that he left behind, that the world of small things is never going to come back again, and he's going to have to accustom himself to a world structure on very different dimensions. So, I want to say for starters that if there is one lesson the American Civil War should teach us, it is never to talk about Civil War lightly, or even worse, talk about it seriously. And yet, the two words, Civil War, are definitely on our lips and in our imaginations. Uh, In fact, there seems to be more reason to use those words now than in 1861. At least in 1861, it was not the basic principles of the American political order which were in question. It it was the specific issue of slavery. And whether those who profited from slavery, uh, in other words, the southern states which legalized it as a labor system, should be permitted to continue its use and to extend its use into the new Western territories and perhaps even uh, reestablish it in the free states of the American North. There is some justice in observing that the Southern political order was tending toward oligarchical rule, but that was a tendency and it was not the leading issue which led to civil conflict in 1861. In fact, when the breakaway Southern Confederacy organized itself in the late winter and early spring of 1861, it wrote a constitution which matched a good deal of the old one that it was repudiating and with some of the same institutional frameworks, uh, a sole executive president, uh, a bicameral national legislature, uh, and an independent judiciary. Uh, There was a provision for a Confederate Supreme Court. It was never organized, but the provision was there in the Confederate Constitution. What gives substance to the expectation that civil war is in our future is not a specific flashpoint issue like slavery in 1861. It is instead the sense that Americans increasingly seem to belong to two entirely different political and ideological regimes. That divergence began in the long run in the 1970s. And with each succeeding decade since then, the fissures have become wider and wider until the two national political parties now seem to represent utterly incommensurate views of American life. The intrusion into the Capitol on January 6th only seems to have heightened that sense of some kind of impending conflict, because there'd really been nothing like what happened at the Capitol since John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, so that we do, at least in that instance, really have an unnerving historical parallel between our situation and the situation of the American Civil War. But I am reluctant to press the parallel too far. Uh, Brown's raid was a carefully calculated event. It was a genuine insurrectionary conception with its own political constitution, which John Brown had drafted in Canada. While what happened on January 6th It looked more like a drunken bar fight than a John Brown style insurrection. Still, the aftermath of Brown in 1859 and the Capitol intrusion in January do represent a parallel because both events provoked a similar politicized near hysteria, which was in turn matched by still more provocation. And yet serious as this moment is, significant as some of the parallel touch points are, I don't think that the historical examples suggest that the outcome will be civil war. And I say that for three reasons. Reason number one, for civil war to succeed, and by succeed I mean not end in someone's victory, but actually become an ongoing feature. For an extended period of time. Each side in that war requires a contiguous landmass to act as its base of support. Now, this, of course, is what happened in our Civil War of 1861 to 65, but that's not the situation today. Although we like to color the map of the states blue on the coastal edges, and red in the vast heartland. Uh, the truth is that every red state has substantial nodes of blue. And, you know, every every blue state has wide swaths of red. So our political polarization is certainly severe, but its actual geography is modeled in a way which does not, I think, indicate the likelihood of outright civil war. Reason number two, why I don't think this points us to civil war, or at least not a civil war parallel to 61 to 65. Any attempt to settle matters by civil war is going to come to quick grief on the question of how much violence can actually be generated. Although there are some people and some factions and some groups out there who like to enjoy boasting about how well-armed they are and they get their photographs taken holding their AR-15s and so on like that, their armaments are dangerous mostly to deer and raccoons and the isolated human victim. In the event of a full-scale insurrection, none of these paramilitary wannabes would last very long against drones or armored personnel carriers or rocket-propelled grenade launchers. There are some people who may entertain fantasies of militiamen at Lexington and Concord facing down the British regulars, but that was because most of these militiamen were veterans of the British armies in the Seven Years' War and because both sides were armed only with equivalent smoothbore muskets. That's not the case today. The kinds of weapons that are in our National Guard armories, the kinds of weaponry that is available to our professional military is far, far beyond the capacity of any self-generated coalition or faction to come up with today. Any attempt to provoke a civil conflict on those terms, will end up looking a lot less like Concord Bridge and a good deal more like Kent State. A third reason why I don't think this tends us toward civil war in our situation is that modern American government, as Max Weber predicted back in 1919, has become more and more rationalized, intellectualized, and above all, bureaucratized. Uh, this, in fact, is similar to what Jim was alluding to when he mentioned Wilfred Pareto and Pareto's theory of oligarchy, because the bureaucracy, federal, state, municipal—the bureaucracy and and mechanisms of government—reach into every aspect of American life. In 1861. Americans could imagine an insurrection against the national government because there wasn't that much national government in their lives to buck against. Today, we depend on national, state, municipal bureaucracies for everything from social security checks to NPR to school boards and school curriculums An insurrection which would jeopardize the benefits and the personnel of that bureaucracy would face an immediate revulsion by the broadest band of Americans, including many Americans who otherwise denigrate the policies and the people of that bureaucracy. So the bureaucratization of American political life means that we all uh, willingly or otherwise have an investment in its continuity which simply didn't exist in 1861, and which didn't exist in the context of other civil wars, such as the English civil wars of 1642 to 51, or the Spanish civil war of the, of the 1930s, or, or the Mexican civil conflicts. We are all knit together, uh, not by our politics, and certainly not by our ideology, but we are by our dependency and bureaucracy. and. That tie will prove remarkably strong now, none of these three considerations means that we are guaranteed avoidance of serious civil unrest you know, if you know, maybe not civil war, but it doesn't mean we're going to automatically avoid serious civil unrest, and in the current climate of mutual hatred and accusation, which Jim has very ably described, I think we can see three examples of the possibilities of such intense civil unrest. The first would be political. And when I say political, what I mean is where you have a now securely democratic federal executive and legislature uh, it it may not be able to restrain itself from passing provocative legislation, which state legislatures will then refuse to obey. We've actually already seen a slight hint of this in the presidential threat to forbid um, travel to and from Florida and the riposte of the governor of Florida uh, for the president of the United States to perform an unspeakable act. Um, This is what we call nullification. And it follows the pattern of South Carolina, which 190 years ago, attempted to nullify congressionally imposed tariffs. And democratic state legislatures, I have to add, have actually been practicing nullification for decades in the form of things like marijuana normalization, uh, sanctuary cities, and so forth and they've been doing it without any serious penalty so there there is in fact uh, more than a little precedent for people to begin practicing nullification uh, in other ways and in other places but the practical effect of widespread nullification would actually be little short of anarchy so it would be an attempt to cure a problem by fostering a disease Another possibility for civil unrest could emerge socially in the creation of of no-go areas, uh, similar to Seattle's Capitol Hill autonomous zone. And these could be created by partisans of both the right and the left. And that's another possibility. And then finally, I think serious civil unrest could take the form simply of personal violence, Uh, such as Timothy McVeigh's uh, bombing of the Alfred Murrah Federal Office Building, Uh, in Oklahoma City in 1995. Uh, I think that these do not ascend to the level of civil war, but they are bad enough on their own terms, and not to be viewed but with grief and horror. So civil war? I think not, at least not in any historically useful sense. But is the situation dangerous? and inclining to outbursts of violence Uh, very possibly very possibly let me let me just shift for one moment to a question kind of a second question that nathaniel opened up at the beginning is history really a dependable guide to answering questions about the present i mean jim and i have tried as professional historians, to offer some historical guidance that way. But a larger question is, is this really an effective way of understanding and comprehending what's going on today? Uh, I think there are three ways in which history can be used and used in in, in some interesting and provocative ways as an instrument of criticism. Uh, First, history can disturb easy conclusions. And in a sense, that's sort of what I've been saying in my comments thus far. This kind of criticism can have, I think, very very positive results. And and Jim notes that we can take comfort from the past always being full of examples of hyper-partisanship, which we have survived. And certainly there's been lots of partisanship in American history. My goodness. Uh, You go back into the years immediately after the constitutional. In fact, go back to the the aftermath of the constitutional convention and look at the kind of partisanship that was manifest in the ratification debates over the constitution. And then you move into Washington's uh, term as the first president. You have the whiskey rebellion in Western Pennsylvania. You have the French frenzy generated by Citizen Genet, and uh, and the French Revolution. Then you have the polarization of Jefferson versus Hamilton and Washington. And, and by the way, Jim, I, I can off the top of my head come up with an example of someone accusing Washington of being Caesar, but they called him a lot of names. <laughs> and it wouldn't surprise me to find Caesar in the in the grab bag of appellations that were affixed to George Washington. Really remarkable. I mean, we're supposed to reverence Washington. But in the 1790s, it galled him no end to find the newspapers accusing him of being a monarchist. Now, that was a moment in which I think he really had some second doubts about uh, why we have this First Amendment uh, about uh, not restricting freedom of the press. I think where were moments in Washington, really wished he could have reached out and shut down Benjamin Franklin Bache's, uh Aurora. But you go on from there. You go on to Andrew Jackson and the bank war. You go on to Andrew Jackson and nullification. But these issues, partisan as they are, generative as they are of extreme reactions, and enormously volatile rhetoric, even in some cases, personal confrontations and brawling on the floor of Congress, nevertheless, they burn themselves out. And they burn themselves out because larger contexts diffuse them, Uh, larger contexts like Western expansion, like economic growth. So the solution in the American environment becomes not monarchy, but rather distracting one's attention to far larger opportunities uh, that are available on the ground. Mm -hmm. The second way in which I think history can function as an instrument of criticism is when it begins to question the tools or the assumptions we use to investigate the past. Uh, By that, I mean that we become self-aware of the limitations of our investigations or our ability to investigate the past. Now, this can act as an agency of humility. It can especially speak to professional historians and say, don't think you can know everything. The problem is it can also act as a discouragement. It can say, well, you never really can understand the past. You can never really penetrate to its essence. You certainly cannot become a sufficient master of sources to say, I know today exactly the environment that was lived in by people 150 years ago. There is a third instrument of criticism that history can function as, and that is when history is construed merely as an instrument of our imagination. This is the moment when all hope is abandoned of really knowing the past. And instead, one begins to accept the construction of narratives, in the place of historical investigation. And I have seen outcroppings of this over the last 10 years, which are in my mind, profoundly disturbing. Uh, This produces real disaster uh, because it produces cynicism, a cynicism that says there really is no way to use the past in any way that will enlighten the present and frankly in the hands of demagogues uh, this kind of criticism this third level of criticism can actually become lethal because the 20th century is limited is, is littered with political demagogues whose appeal to history is an appeal to narratives it's an appeal to, for instance, in the case of the NSDAP in Germany in the 1930s, to the stab in the back. I mean, constantly, what you find dictators and tyrants offering to people is a sense of liberation from the burden of history. We, the demagogues speaking here, are going to free you from the burdens and restraints which have been imposed upon you and which oppress you from the past. That is history as cynicism. And that is when criticism turns lethal. That's when the red lights really need to be going on. So yes, there are three ways we can use history, but we need to be cautious and self-conscious in how we are using that history because some of those ways will produce demons rather than understanding. Nathaniel, let me turn it back to you now.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, those were extremely rich um, and full, uh, full remarks. Let me give you each some time to uh, respond to the other, or if, uh, if anything in, in one's remarks struck the other, or you have anything you'd like to add. Uh, maybe Jim first. Is there anything you'd like to say in response to Alan?
1: um well i'm in deep agreement especially with his final points about the uses of history uh, i think i would add that we need critical history to criticize false narratives narratives that are that are obviously false uh, and also i would stress that history is not futurology futurology for me is a kind of bogus science we can't um, find patterns in the past which will enable us to predict the future that's that was the dream of Machiavelli, right, that you could discover the laws of history and then uh, you could then apply them to any situation and tell what happens next. I don't think history affords us that sort of that sort of view into the future. Uh, history gives us prudence or practical wisdom, uh, mainly by knowing that things can get much, much worse and they can get much, much better. And to observe the the, the, the wisdom and virtues of of past uh, political leaders and to try to imitate those. That's something I think historians can do. Um, I also maybe would comment on this issue of whether we're heading towards another civil war. Uh, I remember talking about this with Alan years ago and you're telling me that uh, no, no, there can't be a civil war because it wouldn't be a regional war like the, like the uh, American civil war. Uh, and I think it's certainly true uh, but there can be other kinds of civil conflict. Which that, that's I think I took you to be saying that we 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 couldn't actually have a shooting war, but we might have a lot of low-level civil conflict for quite a long time. Uh, Angelo Cotevilla talks about the cold civil war. I think that's an interesting term uh, for what we're we're seeing around us right now. Um, but something that does worry me is what you alluded to about uh, sanctuary cities and nullification. We could get to a point on both sides, by the way, uh, of um, red state jurisdictions and blue state jurisdictions simply not recognizing the same law. I heard recently about uh, some uh, jurisdictions that are trying to be sanctuaries for the Second Amendment, for example, where any attempt to have gun control coming down from the federal government would be resisted at the local level, that there would be sheriffs who simply would not enforce the law. Uh, and we could get a situation, And as you say, these things are multiplying, right? These examples of this kind of nullification are multiplying all the time. Uh, and we have, of course, the uh, very bad example of uh, district court judges getting up and, and nullifying an uh, administration policy, uh, which happened a lot in the Trump presidency, that local district court, just, you know, federal federal courts would, uh, or this or that federal court in Hawaii or Wisconsin or something, would simply overturn federal policy. Then the, the administration had to go to the courts and get it overturned. You know, playing whack-a-mole with these uh, these district courts. Uh, that situation should be reformed, I think. But what I'm worried about is a situation where we'd have not a, a civil war, but a breakdown of juridical order. That the country would no longer have a unified legal system. The courts of appeal would no longer function, uh, and we would not be breaking uh, breaking up, uh, having a shooting war. We would, uh, but we would have. Um, and we would have a system where we had, you know, uh, we'd have uh, jurisdictions that are separated from each other and you would have a different law moving from a red state to a blue state, right? This could easily happen with COVID restrictions, right? We see the people have entirely different behaviors in, uh, in, in South Dakota and Florida as they do in, uh, in in uh, pennsylvania and and New York and New jersey and this could be especially if this if these um, bio tyrannies go on uh, for some time in the future we could have a real uh, struggle between the different states about things like public health um, and refusing one state refusing to receive citizens from another state so that, that could be, that, that's the sort of civil war I think we're, we're, we're headed for, this kind of cold civil war where sharp differences of opinion about fundamental issues lead, lead to, um, to breakdown. And one more comment uh, is, uh, I think that the end of this may well be uh, brought on us by external threats. Uh, whenever democracies uh, seem to be breaking down, uh, one thing that brings them back together is an external threat like we had in the Second World War, the Cold War. Uh, we are now facing a very uh, serious challenge from from China. And uh, I do not believe that we should start another Cold War. I'm against that. But uh, I think that the, uh, the rivalry with, with, especially if, U.S. loses its primacy in the world financial system, we could find ourselves getting poor and, and lacking in influence quite, quite quickly after that. So people might at that point wake up and realize that we have to, we have to band together and forget our differences in order to uh, resist uh, a threat to our way of life coming from outside.
2: I would, um, I would add to what Jim said. There are secessionist movements in a variety of places already. Uh, for instance, there is a secessionist movement, there has been in fact for a number of years, in Northern California, which is supposed to take the shape of the so-called uh, State of Jefferson. This would comprise a number of counties in Northern California, along with uh, some adjoining counties from Southern Oregon. And this State of Jefferson Uh, You can actually find billboards uh, beside highways uh, in Northern California promoting this. It has its own uh, Declaration of Independence. It has its own state seal. Uh, There are other movements in states like Colorado uh, for secessionist movements that represent the interests of parts of the state that are not reflected in the central government of those states. So, for instance, the state of Jefferson's principal argument is is not so much with California, it's with Sacramento and with the state legislature there, likewise in Colorado, likewise in a number of other places. Uh, This could itself generate low-level unrest and conflict within those states. So, there there are multiple possibilities short of outright civil war itself, which we have to take into account. And the real question we have to ask ourselves is what are we doing to prevent that from happening the easy thing to do is to point the finger at the other side and say well they're the ones who are provoking it; we're simply responding to their provocation and that I, i cannot argue with that because that is so much embedded in someone's point of view that you're not going to very easily argue them out of it but i would beg people to take a step backwards and ask themselves where this kind of thing will eventually lead, especially in the context of what Jim has said about international tensions, we certainly are experiencing what I think constitutes an imperial reach by China. The Belt and Road Initiative is an example of this. This is, this is a new form of imperialism and we need to be aware of what the reach of this is, even into our own country, because it takes the form not so much of outright colonization as in Asia's past as it does in financialization and we certainly see that in in a what is a really a disturbing degree uh, in our economic system today. so there are many ways short of actual civil war that we can experience unrest unrest, which is ultimately generated by ideological disagreement and how to resolve that, that is going to require require an exercise of conviction and responsibility and the balance between conviction and responsibility that I'm afraid happens only very rarely. We got it in 1861 to 65 in the person of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that was remarkable in its own right, especially when you consider our previous president's Before Lincoln, what did we have? James Buchanan. Oh, there was a real winner. Uh, Franklin Pierce. Oh, another monument of probity. Millard Fillmore. Well, of course, we know how many fans of Millard Fillmore there are out there these days. Uh, Then, after all of those years of of political dredge, (laughs) what do we get? We get Abraham Lincoln. Um, Maybe that, that demonstrates Otto von Bismarck's comment. That the Lord looks out for drunks, fools, and the United States of America. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's, it's the one moment in which I will find myself devoutly hoping that Otto von Bismarck was right.